This week's TribCast is sponsored by the Education Trust in Texas advocates for high-quality education for Black and Latino students and students from low-income backgrounds who have gone underserved for far too long. Learn more at edtrust.org slash Texas. And the San Antonio River Authority. Don't let litter trash your river. Join the San Antonio River Authority and put litter where it belongs. Learn more at sariverauthority.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for November 19th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. And this week I am joined by politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Hello. Hey, Cassie. Politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Hey there. Hey, Patrick. And politics reporter James Badagon. Hello. Hi. Thank you all, all for joining. Um... So this week, the moment we all knew was going to come, it actually came. Beto O'Rourke announced that he was running for Texas governor. Uh, It was a move that prompted giddy reaction from, I'd say, Democrats hoping for a prominent candidate to jump in the race and also um, from quite a few Republicans who point to Beto O'Rourke's not incredibly strong approval ratings in recent polls. Uh, Beto kind of immediately resumed his old campaign tactics, crisscrossing the state you know, in his signature blue shirt, holding multiple events each day. Patrick, you have attended quite a few of those events, and you interviewed him kind of in the run-up to his announcement. Uh, What are your observations? What are you seeing new or not new about Beto, the candidate, in 2022? Yeah, as you pointed out, um, you know, he kind of picked up where he left off in terms of just hitting the road and and starting to to campaign um, immediately and aggressively. Um, you know, some of the things that stood out to me, uh, at least out of the gate, was kind of how uh, concise his platform was and the issues that he was talking about. Um, you know, as I watched him campaign more and more throughout the week, he obviously brought up more issues and, you know, was talking about things. But if you looked at what he was talking about in the interviews that um, he did around his launch and his first campaign event in San Antonio, he was really focused on drawing a contrast with Abbott uh, on two issues in particular. Um, and criticizing Abbott on those two issues, the permitless carry law and the new abortion law. Um, And then also talking about just a couple of uh, proposals of his own, including expanding Medicaid and legalizing marijuana. Um, And, you know, in his, at least at his first event, the public event, which was in San Antonio, he really kept a pretty tight focus on those four issues, I would say. Um, And again, in those interviews, he did two. Um, He didn't speak that long in San Antonio either. And so I think for something that stood out to me out of the gate was uh, kind of uh, how narrow um, that stump speech is. Um, and it's focused on issues where the public opinion is with him. Um, you know, of, of all the, you know, hard right policies we've seen in Texas um, over the past year or so uh, under Governor Abbott, uh, permitless carry um, and the new abortion law have generally proven uh, to be unpopular with the majority of voters in the polling. Um, on abortion, it, it's always a polarized uh, issue in Texas. And so if you just ask the question of, you know, do you support 
banning abortion at a certain point, you're always going to kind of get a split decision. But what's unpopular about the law and the polling is the the private citizen enforcement mechanism. And that's why I think you're seeing, uh, you know, the way that Beto talks about it um, is really leading with, you know, this idea that he says you're, you're placing bounties on the heads of, of Texas women. And so even on that front, you can see how he's playing into where public opinion is on that. Um, and then when it comes to expanding Medicaid and legalizing marijuana, um, those are issues that tend to have uh, pretty decisive majority support among Texas voters. And so that was something that stood out to me. We'll see, obviously, as the race progresses, what, what else he does similar and what else he does different from his 2018 campaign. Um, we got something cleared up in, in our interview with him when he launched. Um, you know, he said that he will run ads against Abbott that, you know, draw a contrast between the two of them, um, which is a diplomatic way of saying that he will run attack ads against Governor Abbott. Um, and that was obviously a huge Huge point of discussion in his 2018 race. Um, he was trying to keep things really positive and was resisting encouragement to run attack ads against Ted Cruz until really the final weeks of the race. And so that's where you could see maybe a, a difference tactically in this race. But we'll we'll wait and see. I mean, there's a lot a lot left to uh, to see. Yeah, you know, I think you know, reading your coverage, Patrick, and just seeing the kind of discussion from both camps and people out there, I think one thing that really struck me is it did seem, as you mentioned, that Beto was really focused on running a pretty positive campaign in 2018. I think some people could make the argument that that was because of the person he was running against. You know, Cruz is a very divisive figure and the people who don't like him, I don't think necessarily need to be reminded that they don't like him. But it did really seem both in Abbott's response, because, you know, even before Beto announced that he was running, he seemed pretty intent on drawing the contrast, Beto's wrong for Texas. You know, he put out these uh, billboards this week with Beto and uh, Beto's face and Joe Biden's face. It kind of struck me that it, it, he didn't even see the need to put Beto O'Rourke's name on there, which I guess maybe isn't that rare in an attack ad and everything like that. But it seems to me like both camps seem somewhat intent on kind of acknowledging, okay, maybe I'm not doing so well in the opinion polls right now in Texas, but uh you know, look at this other guy, like, uh, look at all the things that you shouldn't like about him. And, and I, I do wonder whether we were, we're going to see a much more kind of directly confrontational, you know, kind of negative tone of this campaign compared to 2018. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, you've already just, you know, seen O'Rourke speak in pretty uh, plainly critical terms about Abbott. Uh, on those two laws, I should note, the abortion and the, the permitless carry laws, uh, but also um, in relation to the electrical grid failure in February. And he's been, you know, one of a key part of uh, Oryk's message so far has been that Abbott and state Republican leaders did not do enough uh, after that in the legislature to ensure that something like that doesn't happen again. Um, and again, I mean, public opinion is, is there with him on that. Um, you know, I think it was in the recent Texas Tribune poll that, you know, uh, voters in Texas gave lawmakers an overwhelmingly negative score on the work they did on the grid. Um, at the same time, it's, it's very interesting what work is, is not talking about it and very revealing what he's not voluntarily talking about. Um, you know, he's not talking about he's not actively talking about border security. Um, I've seen him talk on the trail this week about voluntarily talk about immigrants and how they make the country great. But he's not talking about border security. Um, unless asked about it. He's not revisiting those hell yes, we're going to take your guns comments or the proposal that undergirds those comments, a mandatory buyback uh, of assault weapons. Um, and of course, the public opinion on those two issues um, is much stickier, I would say, uh, at least when it comes to the border, um, and especially when it comes to the border and Joe Biden in Texas. 
Biden's deeply unpopular in Texas. Um, but when you specifically ask voters in Texas about Biden's handling of the border, um, you see incredibly lopsided numbers. Um, and I think that was also why you saw in one of the comments that he made in an interview, um, you saw him be pretty critical of Biden on the border. Um, and he said in this interview that it's not a, a priority for the administration and that they need to take it more seriously. And he, he used a, a couple of phrases in this interview and then later on the campaign trail when I asked him about it that you don't typically tend to hear from like Democratic politicians these days about the border. He said that we need to have order, predictability and rule of law on the border, which, you know, not to not to cast any aspersions, but those aren't typically the kind of terms and words that you hear from Democrats when they're being pressed on, on border security. I'm not saying necessarily that they don't have a genuine interest in those things, but it's not exactly the, the, the Democratic campaign rhetoric that you tend to hear. And so to hear, you know, Beto O'Rourke talking about having rule of law, especially, quote, rule of law on the border, I think is very fascinating. Rule of law has been a term that Republicans have you know, really seized and tried to make their own when it comes to discussing the border. Yeah. You know, you, you gave that list of kind of the, the issues that came up on his stump speech, the abortion law, permitless carry, expanding Medicaid, legalized marijuana. I thought legalized marijuana was a very interesting one, although what you say I think is absolutely true. The polls seem to show that, uh, you know, even though we're a conservative state, uh, a lot of Texans seem to support that idea. But the other thing that kind of stood out to me about it was that it seems very possible that by the time November comes along, assuming we have a Beto versus Abbott uh, uh, general election, that two of those four stump speech items could be kind of taken off the table. You know, the the abortion law, of course, is is currently awaiting a ruling from the Supreme Court and could end up being struck down. You know, there's also the Mississippi case that that could kind of change that. But then you also have the expanded Medicaid, which is, you know, the House last night passed the Build Back Better Act, which includes some money to kind of, uh, you know, provide that resource to Texans, kind of get away the, the get around the issue of Texas and a bunch of other states not expanding Medicaid. So, you know, I do wonder about how sustainable that list of, of stump speech items is, uh, given those two things. You know, the other thing on there, permitless carry, of course. Um, you know, James, I I suspect that uh, Governor Abbott seems pretty eager to to be having a gun conversation with with uh, with Beto as well, given Beto's comments during the presidential campaign here. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, he's pointed out even before the announcement, he's pointed out um, Beto's comments on, you know, he, hell yes, we're going to take away your AR-15s and AK-47s. Um, and today, even I just saw a little bit earlier today, after the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, verdict came out, you know, the governor was very, uh, very quick to, you know, tweet out uh, his not guilty in all caps um, of course, that was a sort of stand your ground uh, defensive use of, of guns case there. Um, and so I think the governor relishes that conversation. He's ready to have it. I think he thinks that uh, Texans are on his side of it. And more importantly, that Texans are against that claim that Beto made during his presidential run. Um, and just, I mean, that's going to happen with a lot of issues, right, Patrick, as you pointed out in your earlier stories uh, about Beto, like that, that, that presidential run really... Uh, really could come back to haunt him on the on the campaign trail. He's trying to stay away from them on his stump speech, but the voters are going to ask the questions, and it'll be interesting to see how he responds. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Patrick. No, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's on a number of these issues where 
Um, I, I think he's recalibrating or um, reassessing how much emphasis to put on them. Um, you know, it's one thing to address an issue when a reporter asks you about it, but it's always revealing, you know, when you look at the stump speech what and, and the, you know, the paid media, what are the issues, what is the agenda that you're volunteering to the voters? And I think that that's going to be revealing throughout this campaign. Yeah, I think that uh, I, I always think back when the issue of guns comes up to the um, the Wendy Davis Greg Abbott race when when Wendy Davis came out uh, fairly late in the campaign in favor of open carry, and and uh, it I think a lot of people kind of viewed that as a sort of desperate move by her uh, when as she was trailing in the polls, and and I think later she came out you know way post-election and said she regretted kind of taking that stance. It, it just, I think it does kind of go to show the uncomfortable position um, uh, Democrats can find themselves in around guns in these races. It's, you know, of, I think the, the hell yes, we're going to take your AR might be an unpopular stance, but he seems to also recognize that the permitless, the polling shows that the permitless carry bill is not a particularly popular issue either. Yeah. It's been very revealing this week. You know, he clearly believes that he can blunt questions or counteract questions about his own positions on, <clears throat> excuse me, gun control proposals by immediately pivoting to the permitless carry law and making it about Abbott. And, and to be clear, that's what I think that's what Democrats that I speak to want to see from him. They, they don't want him revisiting the hell yes comment. They don't want him you know, having to explain it. They want him to have a very honed in message on Abbott. And so in that way, he's delivering. Of, of course, it doesn't prevent reporters from us from trying to yeah. <laughs> draw him out and, and break through that. That's our, our job, obviously. But it was very revealing. He just in, in this same vein, in the gaggle that he did after his first public event in San Antonio, someone just asked him, give me your position on guns. To tell me your position on guns. Very general, you know, question where he could have talked about um, how he wants to ban assault weapons, um, you know, or, or universal background checks, even, which is obviously very popular. But instead, he just responded with an answer that was exclusively about the permitless carry law. He didn't even talk about his own, you know, his own uh, policy proposals. It was just exclusively about, given the opportunity to provide his position on guns, it was exclusively about permitless carry. And I think that that tells you what the strategy is here. That's interesting too, Patrick, because uh, that sounds like a much more disciplined candidate than what we saw in 2018 and even in 2020, which I covered less less of that race. But in 2018, he was just all over the place. His his comments sometimes were rambling and press gaggles. Yeah. It sounds like he's, he's, he's on message and he's very disciplined. It seems like that so far, yeah. I was interested to see, you know, and you tweeted out this list of the kind of some stump speech on the, on the day I think you saw him in San Antonio, Patrick. But I was interested to see of that four that the winter storm wasn't one of those. I mean, it sounds like he's going to make an issue of this. Do we do we have a sense of how how much? Yeah, he, he definitely has been mentioning it, and I think it's a it's a top issue for him. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I definitely think it's, it's, it's been a part of the pitch pretty heavily from the beginning here. Um, you know, the, the, the question for me in that issue right now is, is the tension actually among Republicans on this. I mean, of course, Democrats are, are running on this, but you have real tension inside the Republican Party in Texas about whether more needs to be done on the grid. Governor Abbott has said everything that we needed to do to prevent another disaster like that was done in the legislature afterward. He's, he's tried to close the case on that basically. And you have Lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, who has been 
pretty vocal on the opposite end of that, saying there's still more we need to do, particularly when it comes to relief for rate, rate payers. And so, you know, Beto's making it a, a top issue. Um, and I would, if I were him, given where the public opinion is on this, um, but I'm, I'm more fascinated by the tension on the Republican side right now. Um, and, you know, that, that disconnect between two of our top leaders. James, it seems like a risky move to be going around saying the grid has been fixed when we're about to head into a winter. And if anyone, you know, if anyone's lights flicker for uh, for uh, 30 seconds, I think there's going to be a, a public meltdown. Um, I mean, what do you think of this as a political issue? You know, the, the primary, of course, early voting is right around the anniversary of that winter storm. A November general election, of course, will be coming out of a summer and maybe will be less at the front of people's minds. But how salient do you think this will be in, in 2022? Yeah, I mean, it's that it's that it's that Game of Thrones line, right? Winter is coming. And uh, so <laughs> people uh, people are, uh, you know, you do get sort of like those flashbacks and remember what that was like. I think it's going to be a a very, very uh uh, salient uh, topic of discussion during the primary um, and during the general even. But I think like every candidate, it's not just Beto, every candidate on the Democratic side um, I'm hearing is talking about it. It's like one of those top three food groups, public education, uh, healthcare, and fix the grid. And sometimes fix the grid is higher um, on those rankings. So it's definitely a major issue uh, that Democrats are trying to expose Republicans on. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens as winter continues to come. Uh, I mean, is is it risky for the governor to be saying everything is fixed? Sure, it's risky. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't know, right? There's a lot of things that the governor knows that we don't know. I'm sure his staff is keeping an eye on it and, you know, making sure everybody is like... Uh, uh, crossing their T's and dotting their I's so that they avoid some type of uh, embarrassing situation here. Um, but it, it's certainly it's certainly a gamble to say, hey, everything's fixed. But he has also taken other gambles like this on the pandemic when we reopened. And, you know, there must be, there must be something he knows that maybe we don't know. All right. Well, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors. The Texas State University System. Lamar University ranks third nationally and first in Texas for engineering graduate net earnings, outperforming Stanford, Rice, and MIT. For more information, visit tsus.edu. And the Alamo. Keep history alive to ensure that future generations remember the Alamo. Join Friends of the Alamo today at thealamo.org. Okay, so of course the governor's race is not the only race on the ballot, and there are a lot of other interesting statewide and legislative and congressional races that will be happening in 2022. Patrick, the one that I think has our attention today, I, I hesitate to talk too much about this, given that the news could change as we speak or as soon as we're done speaking, but is... Um, whether our uh, one of our members of Congress, Louis Gomert, will be uh, running for Attorney General, uh, give us the latest on that uh, saga. Yeah, well, we're recording this on on Friday afternoon, um, and about a week ago or ten days ago, exactly, Louis Gomert had been pretty open in making an announcement and saying he would run for Attorney General if he could raise a million dollars in ten days. Um, as of one oh six p.m. Friday right at this moment. We don't know if he raised that money. We don't know if he's going to run for attorney general. 
Um, on Friday morning, he was supposed to be on Mark Davis's radio show in Dallas to make an announcement, but he never called in and the show ended um, at a scheduled time without hearing from him. So uh, as of this moment, it's, it's uncertain whether uh, he met that fundraising goal, uh, whether he's going to run for attorney general or not. Uh, and obviously the clock is ticking. The filing deadline for the primary is December 13th. Uh, and that primary, that Republican primary, is already pretty crowded. Um, you've got the incumbent, Penn Paxton, State Representative Matt Krause of Fort Worth, Eva Guzman, former state Supreme Court Justice, and Land Commissioner George P. Bush. Um, so we don't have much of an update on Gomer. Um, maybe over the weekend or later later Friday we'll learn something. Sure. All right. Well, I want to kind of go around to all of y'all, our, our panel of political reporters here, and, and, and hear kind of what y'all are watching and, you know, excited about, about these races is we're, you know, we have candidates filing right now. I'm going to start with you, Cassie. I mean, what, what, what's caught your eye in the kind of early part of filing period, um, in these Texas elections and kind of looking ahead to the, the 22 election, 2022 elections so far? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing is, uh, no one really seems convinced that we've hit our ceiling yet in terms of the number of retirements we're going to see, uh, coming out of the, the legislature. Um, I know the speaker was uh, House Speaker Dave Phelan was was speaking at an event uh, earlier today and, and said he expects Speed Tech was it upwards of forty or, or nearly forty uh, new members, yeah. um, like returning to the Capitol, uh, you know, for for twenty twenty three, and that's just you know like a pretty uh, big big number, right? We have redistricting, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of things that. That have, of course, like, you know, probably made some of these retirements, you know, put them on like a a quicker schedule or whatnot. But, um, yeah, just two notable retirements already this week with Joe Jessitel and and Garnet Coleman, uh, you know, in the Texas House. Uh, How many more are we going to see? Right. And and with the filing period um, just underway, it'll be, you know, just uh, curious to see how that ends up panning out. Um, The other thing that I'm watching for is. You know, um, there seems to be more or less like a natural rhythm, right, to when primary season, particularly on the Republican side, uh, picks up. It's usually like, I don't know, mid-January-ish. Um, one of the races that I'm watching or covering is is the agriculture commissioner's race, right, Sid Miller versus James White. Um you know, in primaries like that, is it going to be a, a battle of, of who's the more conservative candidate, who's the more experienced candidate? Um, you know, just how like traditional of a primary season are we going to have? Um, I think is is going to be something interesting. Um, just again, as we as we get through the holidays and whatnot. Yep, Patrick, what has your eye? What are what are you tracking these days? You know, I'm very interested in South Texas. Um, you know, another thing that happened this week is State Representative Ryan Guillen, uh, uh, who was then a Democrat uh, from Rio Grande City, announced that he was changing parties um, and joining the Republican Party and running for re-election in his newly redrawn district as a Republican. Um, so stuff like that continues to intrigue me. There's just a lot of a lot of political fluidity um, in South Texas right now, particularly in the, in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, we only learned uh, just recently that State Senator Eddie Lucio, Democrat from Brownsville, would not be running for re-election, uh, creating an open seat for the first time in decades based in uh, Cameron County. Um, and that is going to be a hard-fought race um, in both primaries and in the general election. Um, and it's still filling up because that decision by Lucio is so recent. Um, you also have uh, you know, a couple of congressional races down there that are going to be competitive um, in the primary 
um, and slash or in the general election. Uh, so that, that continues to uh, intrigue me. Um, and we obviously saw the underperformance in that region by Joe Biden in 2020. Um, and so it's also going to intrigue me, not just what the Republican playbook is to extend that growth in that region, but also the Democratic playbook to win back those voters or hold off further erosion in their numbers uh, down there. It, it should be noted, I think it was very notable that Beto O'Rourke, you know, chose South Texas as effectively the first region to campaign in uh, for his gubernatorial campaign. He went to San Antonio, went to Laredo, and then went down to the Valley, came up through Corpus, and then it's heading to Houston. Um, and reporters asked him about this, and he said it was, quote, very intentional that he was going to that part of the state in the beginning of his campaign. So I think Democrats know that they have some work to do down there. Yeah, I'll be honest, I don't quite know what to make of the the RGV, the South Texas narrative right now. I mean, it is, of course, it was, of course, striking that Trump performed so well down there. I think uh, for many people, it has been somewhat lost that Democrats did, you know, significantly better farther down the ballot there, although maybe not as well as they would have liked. And then, of course, we've had these various things that have happened since then, you know, the retirements of certain members and then, of course, Guillen changing parties. But, you know, the Guillen changing parties strikes me to be more driven by the fact that his district was redrawn in such a way than necessarily a sign of, you know, a, a major shift happening. You know, we, we saw the same thing happen with J.M. Lozano 10 years ago when, when his district was redrawn to be more Republican and he switched parties almost immediately after. Of course, it is, it's well known that a lot of the, the, um, the South Texas Democrats, um, particularly Hispanic South Texas Democrats, tend to be a little bit more moderate than the, the full party. So, you know, I think it continues to be seen you know, what what that's going to look like politically down the line, how much of this is due to a kind of cultural shift, a political shift in that region, and how much of it is due to, you know, more fav favorable lines down there. Yeah, that it's a very dynamic situation, as you point out, and I think that's going to be, you know, as we continue to cover this Republican offensive in South Texas, I think a, a key task for uh, us and just any other media or observers is going to be trying to separate the legitimate political trends and shifts um, from the advantages that are being created by redistricting. Um, because in some of these cases, you know, Republicans are almost, you know, trying to draw this offensive into reality. Uh, when you look at the, uh, you know, the new district that Guillen got, uh, when you look at how much less Democratic the state Senate district that where Eddie Lucio is retiring is, um, and when you look at the 15th congressional district, um, which they were already targeting um, before redistricting. So I think that's a, a great point. Um, there's, I think there's no doubt there's um, some kind of political shift happening in that part of the state. Um, but there are going to be instances where it's going to be important to include the context that redistricting may be hastening or, or augmenting um, or at the root of some of those perceived political shifts. Yep. Yeah. All right, James, what's your thing? Where are you watching right now? What has your eye? Uh, my, my, my time at the Dallas Morning News has got me watching the EBJ announcement, uh, whether she's going to be running for re-election or if it's going to open up for the first time in, gosh, was it like 30 years that she's been there? Um, there's already some announced candidates there. Uh, she's got the big announcement Saturday. Um, and, you know, the Dallas Morning News did point out that uh, State Rep. Carl Sherman and State Senator Royce West, two people who could be potentially seen as successors, are going to be at the announcement. 
So that kind of makes me think, you know, could be a retirement announcement, could be, you know. So I don't know. I'm interested to see that one. I think she's the only person that's ever held that district. Um, so, so I think that one's a fun one to watch. And then this one might be a, a boring one for the rest of the for the rest of the podcast. But for me, I'm really interested in the lieutenant governor race. I think, you know, there was already uh, Mike Collier and Matthew Dowd running. And this week, Michelle Beckley jumped in um, and she's a very outspoken uh, member of the House. Um, really always says what's on her on her mind, whether you love it or hate it. And that makes it always fun for me uh, as a reporter. Um, and so I think that's an interesting addition to that race. I think uh, Collier and Dowd were sort of trying to, you know, play it safe, not not get at too too much at each other's throats. But I think Michelle Beckley really is going to want to come in and, and put her name on this race. So I think that one's going to be interesting. Yeah. Cassie, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and I, I apologize if, uh, if you are insulted by this, but it feels like the legislative races are a little bit sleepy this time. You know, this time two years ago, we had, uh, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to be mad. I'm sorry. The, uh, you know, we were talking about whether the Democrats were going to flip the House and, and with redistricting, with the political atmosphere that we're here in right now, where it just doesn't look great for Democrats in 2022. Uh, I mean, I'm not seeing a lot of tension there. Tell me, correct me, put me in my place. Oh, Watkins, um, I wish I could disagree with your premise. Um, um, I, I mean, look, I'm always going to find the legislative races the most accelerating. Um, I know that I cannot speak for everyone on this trip cast. Um, but you're right. Like they're, you know, heading into to 2020 election, um, you know, both in, in primary and in general, uh, you know, election races, um, really like the through line, you know, up and down the ballot was are Democrats going to flip the Texas house for the first time in, in decades. And it doesn't really seem to be a question, especially with, uh, you know, as you pointed out, um, on the heels of redistricting and, you know, uh, the, the Abbott versus Beto, uh, you know, headlining race, I think, is probably getting the most attention. Um, I, too, am excited to see how the lieutenant governor's race, at least the Democratic primary, shakes out. Um, James, if you want to fist bump me through the screen? Thank you. Um, Futech, we can get on in on that as well. Um, but I'll let James go first if he has something. <laughs> um, you're right. You're right. Is you're right. You're right. Watkins is like the short version. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So I mean, the other thing that I wanted to talk about before we wrap up here is James. You created quite a stir with your story earlier this week, uh, pointing out the um, decided lack of diversity among the at the top of the ticket. You know, the statewide ticket for Texas Democrats. We of course have Beto O'Rourke running for governor we have those those candidates those notable candidates that you mentioned for lieutenant governor are all white um, including two white men and further down the line you see uh some some you know people from diverse backgrounds of, of some people who people of color who are on the ballot but kind of not lacking the big names or not uh or lacking the big names that that you might have seen in the past. What, what, talk, tell us a little bit about the situations Democrats find themselves in that regard. 
Yeah, so certainly this, this story caused a, a lot of thoughts and opinions. Um, and if you have any, please send them to matthew.watkins at textstream.org. <laughs> that's, that's not my email, so that's fine. <laughs> but listen, I, I, I get the, the criticisms that people had. I, I get the thoughts and feelings that everyone had. Um, you know, it's 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 difficult, I think, for Democrats um, to keep having to have these conversations about uh, not being to being able to present viable candidates. Um, and, and it's a conversation we've had over the years. I think two things to point out. One was that, you know, we had a sort of threshold for what we consider to be viable candidates. Right. One was have you held state, federal uh, or state or federal positions or a city, county office in a major Texas area where you would have had to like gather a substantial amount of voters to to win that race. That was one dynamic. Or you could have been a a very strong fundraiser. I think either one makes you an actual like viable candidate that can raise to that next level. Uh, And obviously, if you had both, that that's great. Um, The issue for Democrats is that they don't have any candidates of color that would meet those two thresholds. I think there was a question about some of the AG candidates and whether they met that threshold. Um, I don't think they have enough of a fundraising record there to say one way or the other. Um, But basically the gist of it is, you know, Beto's at the top of the ticket. We just talked about the light gov candidates, all white. And so if your voters are majority people of color, and then most of your folks at the state house, most of the folks representing your party are people of color. Then what is the situation here? Why can't the why can't these candidates break through to that top tier? And the question that we explored in the story was, you know, there is a lack of funding there. There is a lack of in- infrastructure. Candidates of color, uh, some of whom called me and texted me yesterday to say that, you know, the story was sort of spot on was, you know, they can't get the same kind of funding that white candidates, frankly, get. Um, And it's a difficult conversation. It makes some people uncomfortable. But it's I I think the reaction means that, you know, it is a conversation that the Democratic Party should be having. Um, And so that, that was the gist of it. It certainly sparked a lot of conversation, but I think it was a worthwhile story to explore. Definitely. You know, I think there were there were some people who responded to that and and talked about, you know, there being a lack of a bench among the Democratic Party, which I know not everyone believes that. And I will put myself as someone who doesn't particularly believe that. I mean, I think you look around the state, you've got, you know, candidates like or not candidates, but elected officials like Lena Hidalgo, the, the Castro brothers, Colin Allred, Veronica Escobar, people like that. And you know what the difference is between that, you know, aside from the fact that they are people of color and they're, you know, viewed as people on the rise, one big difference between them and uh, Mike Collier and Beto O'Rourke is that they hold current office and they haven't kind of swung for the fences and missed already. And I think if you look at this year, I mean, it's it's looking like it's going to be a really rough year for Democrats in 2022. There's a lot that could change between now and November, of course. But the you look at the president's approval rating, you look at, uh, you know, the, the generic ballot on in Congress nationwide, the Republicans have a massive lead, like a 10 point lead in that it's there, you know, every factor you kind of look at, it's the off year for a uh, first term president. It doesn't look great for Democrats. And, and so why would you, if you're Lena Hidalgo or, 
or, or, or Joaquin Castro walk away from a pretty prominent, you know, comfortable position that you're in right now to, to run in, in what could be a, a pretty tough campaign. I, I've got to think that's going to be, that's a factor too. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly the point. Like, why would they give up a position that they fought so hard for where they're affecting policy so that they get, could go, what, go get trounced by a Republican who's got millions and millions of dollars in advantage in the fundraising race? It's it's very difficult. And it, but But I do think, you know, it's much more than this is going to be a difficult year for Democrats. I think this is a question, like, um, that can extend really any year that we've had. And so it does, I think, merit conversation. And, you know, some of the folks that called me yesterday said, you know, this is also on on the donors um, because they don't fund these candidates. And why would these candidates uh, run against all odds, uh, put them and their families uh, through what is a rough cycle? We know Texas politics is a full contact sport. Um, you know, put their financial well-being, you know, jobs then get, you know, you have to leave your job, then how can you get another job? Why would they risk all that to go run a losing battle, especially if they know that the, the money usually is not there for candidates of color? You know, everybody is always clamoring for Julian or um, Joaquin Castro. Um, and, you know, there are good reasons why those folks haven't run. So I think until someone lays out like, okay, here's the sort of support and infrastructure that we can put out for you all. I think people are going to continue to be hesitant, um, hesitant to run. And the other thing is like, if you look at the candidates of color on the Republican side, you know, they also mentioned that there are some challenges there, but it is in, in many ways, it is easier because, you know, Eva Guzman and George P. Bush have shown that if you, if you have a solid track record uh, you can tap into that Republican donor network that exists. They, you know, Eva Guzman at one point raised a million dollars in ten days. Um, George P. Bush has raised multiple millions of dollars, and so the donor network for them is much easier to tap into than it would be for uh, Democratic candidates of color, which I think also plays a role in this. Okay, well, I think that is enough time for us today. But thank you to Cassie, James, and Patrick. Thank you to our producer, Michael Ray, and thank you to our sponsors, the Education Trust in Texas, the San Antonio River Authority, the Texas State University System, and the Alamo. We'll talk to you all next week.